And if you've got your Bibles, let's just decide to look at the Gospel of John today. (laughs) Father, we thank you so much for your grace and especially for your word because every part of it has something for us and a unique situation we're looking at today. We just pray for your understanding as we look at how Christ deals with a, a man in need. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so we've been in chapter four for a few weeks and most of chapter four in John's gospel relates to Jesus' interaction with the famous woman at the well. I can't wait to find out her name in heaven. I always wonder, that's what we call her, the woman at the well. And that happened in Samaria and Jesus, the text says, remember, he had to go through Samaria to get to the northern part of Israel to Galilee. And you don't have to go through Samaria to get to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So the father obviously chose to have Jesus follow that path to Galilee um, through there because the Lord wanted to save that Samaritan woman. And many of the folks in her town, the town of Sikar, a small town in, in Samaria. So the simple conversation um, at a well ended up turning into a two-day stay. So Jesus stayed there because she went and witnessed to the town people for him and they all wanted him to stay after they met him and heard him. So he stayed there for two days teaching them. I just would love to have been there hearing Jesus teach for two days. But many believed in him. So now starting in chapter 4 verse 43, that's where we are this morning, um, it's on to Galilee. So you, you remember that Jesus did not have the best response from the people that ran the temple in Judea. You remember that? They were a little bit upset with him. And um, so Jesus is determined to spend a lot of time in the north in Galilee. And that's really where his headquarters is going to be for his ministry. Because um, he, he's, got a, he's got a lot of work to do and he can't be killed too early. <laughs> so so um, he's going to spend a lot of time up there. He'll go down into Judea regularly, especially on feast days. But he's, a lot of his work's going to be up there. And, and then across the Jordan and Perea, he's going to do a lot of ministry there too. But um, our text today um, is sort of related to that whole issue because it begins in verse 43 with uh, something that Jesus said, uh, uh, a saying that he quotes. So verse 43 of chapter 4, it says, After two days, the two days in Samaria, He went forth from there into Galilee for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So obviously all of Israel is his own country but the heart of it, the center of it where the leadership is is in Judea in in Jerusalem there. So um, and he was not he was not honored there by them. So in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, there was quite a difference between the reception he got in Galilee and the reception he got in Judea. Judea was overall more hostile, you know, so much more hostile, generally speaking. And in Galilee, Jesus was at first, at least, celebrated and adored. And it's not just being a hometown boy. They didn't have the same frame of mind as the spiritual leaders down in Judea who were guarding their own power structures. We'll talk about that in a second. But, um, you know, Judea, Jerusalem's the center of official Judaism. And so the power was there. So the people in power, they tend to feel threatened by anything that catches the attention and devotion of the masses, right? We want all of your attention drawn to the temple and There's people outside drawing attention away. They don't like that. And a big reason and 
the particular time when Jesus lived, the big reason was the temple was a money making operation. We've talked about that before in chapter 2. So um, Jesus upset the apple cart. Actually he upset the money changers tables. And I don't know if he really got after the apple cart or not. But um, he, right in the heart of the temple. And he said stop making my father's house a place of business. He, right? And his father's house was a place of very lucrative business. The greed angle is really important in understanding the antagonism of the leadership of Israel toward Jesus, especially the high priest and his family. But they were critical in all of that. But that's not the only reason, but that was a big reason. So Jerusalem's where the great temple is. Jerusalem's where the great council, the Sanhedrin sat with the high priest being a part of both of those entities. And the best schools were there. You know, if you're going to be a rabbi, that's the place to go to school for your um, education. Jesus didn't do that. So it's natural. Now it, it is kind of natural for re religious authorities to want to protect their influence and their dominance and all that. That's normal. They exercise this authority. They would say we're preserving the faith. That's what their claim would be. And that could be a good thing if you really are preserving the faith. But um, the psychological and emotional perks that come with unchallenged control of anything but especially in a religious world that the craving of respect was dominant in their thinking and in the way they practiced their faith and their leadership so they wanted the respect of the world that's what Jesus is dealing with all through the gospels they want to be seen by men as holy and he's bringing the truth so they're not going to like that and anything that challenges their control they're against it so John the Baptist remember way back in chapter 1 they were suspicious of him he was a prophet of God he was a prophet of God everybody knew he was a prophet of God but he operated outside of the system right so they were very skeptical about him but but you got to say something about John he never did walk into the temple and throw over the money changers he never did that so um, so he wasn't quite as hated as Jesus was when he did that um, so to reach the most people and to have several years of proclamation and preaching that would be free of direct interference. Jesus spends more time outside of Judea than actually in Judea. And for this very reason that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And we're going to see that in John's gospel as we go. The building animosity towards Jesus especially in certain circles but it grows and grows over time. Uh, even though he has the power to heal um, that does not have any impact on the hatred and the disdain that the Jewish leadership has for him. And I should mention that Jesus said something kind of similar about a town in Nazareth where, uh, I mean a town in Galilee where he grew up which is Nazareth right he grew up there. The same thing happened there. Talk about a prophet not being uh, having honor in his own country. Matthew chapter 13 verse 54 Jesus told that same parable there that same uh, saying he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished all right hometown boy he's famous everybody loves him he's doing all these wonderful things he comes home and they comes he preaches in the synagogue and they're so well happy isn't the word <laughs> they're astonished where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Not that Judas, another Judas. And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where did this man get all these things, they say? 
and they took offense at him. That's the important sentence. So you can say all that stuff and be amazed. But when it says they took offense at him, who do you think you are? You just grew up here. We all know you. You're a carpenter. You used to work down at Sephora in the big city building things. I, we know you. And then Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Even his brothers were not supportive of him. And then it says he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. So that's a really interesting passage because they acknowledge the miracles and his great wisdom. That's actually, where did he get this wisdom? Where did he get the power to do these great miracles? And they don't like him. It's a, hey, we know this kid story, you know. And he didn't do miracles all those years he was growing up. So they're shocked that he can do them now. And he didn't go to any rabbinical schools. So he's one of us. How can he be special? They took offense. So there's always reasons. There's always reasons not to believe. And some of them are very petty, right? They're pathetic. But things are different in most of Galilee. At the beginning, they really welcome Jesus. They adore Jesus. So verse 45 of John chapter 4 tells you why. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast. So that same feast, Passover, where he turned over the money changers, people from Galilee were there and were delighting in it. They were excited about it. They had no power to lose. In fact, those were the ones being, those were the people being cheated by the system and charged exorbitant fees to bring sacrifices and all of that. So they're the ones that would already be sort of leaning against the corruption that was going on at the temple. But that's that, that's that thing. But so they saw Jesus do all those things and when he's coming to Galilee, they're thrilled. They're not against him at all. They have no reason to be against him. So Jesus does miracles there. And um, he, Jesus taught all through the festival at Passover and they saw it. In fact, John chapter 2, verse 23, it says, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. We've talked about that word signs. It's going to run all through the gospel. It's really important. Signs are things that are amazing that point to certain specific truths about Christ. That's what the signs are. And a lot of people were believing on him there because of the signs. And they were ready for Jesus when he went north. So verse 45 says very simply, they received him. Now, that, doesn't, that word is different than the word used in John chapter 1 verse 12. Right? Where it says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So this is a different word, and it just means mainly they welcomed him. In fact, some translations, your, your translation might say they welcomed him. That's a better way to say it at this point. There probably were people that had actually received him savingly in their hearts that are part of that. But also just a lot of people that are thrilled that this wonderful miracle working prophet is functioning in their area. So that's how they would have seen him at that particular time. Most people did not know who he really was. So they welcomed him. So Jesus goes to Galilee, specifically says he went to Cana of Galilee in verse 46. He came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. So that miracle turning the water into to wine, John called that the first sign, right? So now he's going to talk about another sign. Now Jesus did a bunch of miracles in Jerusalem after the water into the wine thing. So it's not his second miracle, but the, what he's going to talk about today in today's text is the second sign. So it's something that's pointing to a specific aspect of who Christ is. 
And so John is using these more detailed stories as signs. That's why he's telling these stories. So this is another miracle story like turning water into wine. But today's miracle story isn't Jesus' second miracle. It's just the second sign in John's gospel. That makes sense? Okay, so the miracle today in, in this text involves a distressed father and a very sick child. His child is nigh unto death. So he comes to Jesus. And for the dad, and I hope for us, it's a lesson in faith. So back to verse 46, it says, there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. All right? So he is a basilikos, is actually what he is. I know you all knew that. But he's some kind of royal official. He serves the king. That's what that means. A a king servant or a king official there. So he's an officer of the king. And since his family is at Capernaum, he's almost certainly an official of Herod Antipas, the tetrarch who's a total jerk. Herod Antipas is the guy that's going to kill John the Baptist. He's the guy that's going to play with Jesus when he's after he's arrested and mock him and all that kind of stuff. So um, totally horrible person. Now he's so he's a royal official in Capernaum probably almost certainly serving Herod Antipas. Some have suggested that this man might be Chuzza, Chuzza, Herod's steward. Why would they believe that? Because Luke talks about Joanna who is Chuzza's wife being one of the lady patrons of the ministry of Christ. And so Jesus ends up with his headquarters in Capernaum. Her family's in Capernaum. So that connection could have been made that way. So it could be. This is a royal official. If he's, if he's the steward, if that's his position, it doesn't say what it is here. But then that would have fit, that might fit that. So it's possible. We don't know that for sure, but it's possible. Anyway, she did help support the ministry financially of Christ, and she was a witness of the resurrection as well. So anyway, this officials from Capernaum where Jesus is going to have his headquarters. So he is the Basilikos. (laughs) And uh, he's on an urgent mission. And his mission is driven by his love as a father. Loves his son. His son's very sick, right? So verse 47, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and to heal his son for he was at the point of death. So Jesus is in Cana. That's a little over 20 miles away from Capernaum. And he travels that distance to ask Jesus to come and heal his son. Now, if he is a royal official of some kind, if he's under the king and in highly placed, he's got money and he's got status, right? So we can assume he's not just a panicky parent about his child with a bad chest cold or something like that. The best doctors in Capernaum have already seen his son. I mean, you can just assume that that's what they would do right away is get the best doctors to come in. And this is one of those situations where the doctors say, I think this is all we can do. We don't have anything else in our our system to to make your son well. He's not going to make it. So a recovery is extremely unlikely. But he heard that Jesus was in Cana. So the word about Jesus goes around, right? 20 miles away, they're talking about it. He's back in, he's back in Galilee. And he hears about that. So he gets on a horse and he rides there to get Jesus and beg Jesus, if need be, to come back with him to heal his son. 
So he comes to Jesus, come back with me. My son is right unto death. I, I, I need you to come back and, and heal him. And Jesus says something kind of out of character and, and it's rather jarring. Sometimes Jesus uses jarring things to get people's attention. So verse 48, Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Now he's saying this to a father whose child is dying. So why would he do that? Why would he do that? Well, let's kind of want to work through that today, why he might say that. And uh, he is going to heal the child, just in case you were worried. So, um, but he says that, and, and, and it's interesting too, because he says it to him, he's speaking to him, it says that, but he uses the plural you. So he's talking about kind of the situation in Galilee and the kind of faith people are bringing to Jesus, the kind of response they're having. They're all excited about him, they're all happy about him, but are they embracing him as who he really is or is he somebody that just works miracles, right? See the difference there? A lot of people today look to God the same way, look to Christ the same way. He can give me things, he can do things for me, he can provide for me, he can, and yeah, he can do those things, but is that the heart of what he's all about and what we're supposed to be all about? So that's where we're going with this today. So I want you to think about that. So, um, why bring up this need for signs and wonders to believe? The, 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 the fact that they, they need that to believe. Why is he bringing that up with this guy? It seems kind of harsh. But he actually exemplifies where most of the people are, which is very shallow. It's a very shallow level. If it's faith at all, it's a, it's a shallow faith. And so far the Galileans have welcomed him, but their faith is not in him as the son of God, as their king, as their Messiah. It's a generic faith in, in him as a healer, a miracle worker, a teacher. They love to hear him teach. He's very good at it. And maybe a prophet like Elijah. They might think that about him since he has power like Elijah had. But if Jesus was a magician or a shaman or just a guy with a proven record of healing, some kind of prophet, those people would come to him just on that basis. But that's not who he is. So he's going to work against that. He's got to bring them farther along than that. So what did Jesus come for? Well, what does he say? I came to seek and to save those who are lost, right? That's his primary purpose, not to heal children that are sick. He's happy to do that, but that's not why he's there. And if people stop at that level of make me well physically, then we're missing the whole point. So he does bless people. Jesus shows great compassion all the time. He healed untold numbers of people, but his, his power was a sign of who he is, a sign of who he is. So signs point to his divinity. So the great purpose and what people needed then and what they need today is to know who he really is, what he taught, why he came, and that was overwhelmingly the most important thing. So he's going to challenge this man, this, this official, and that's why he talks to him the way he does. You can see the man's desperation. I mean, and he wants to bless the man, but he doesn't want to just heal his son either. He wants the man's faith to grow, to be rightly focused. So he says to him, unless, people see, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And I don't think this Basilikos guy wanted a lecture on whether or not people believe in Jesus for the wrong reasons or not. I don't think that's what he was caring about right at that moment. I imagine when Jesus said that to him, he was probably irritated by it. I, I would be if I was his, in his situation. 
but he's going to fight for his son. So I suspect with determination and probably all the respect that he can muster even if he is irritated he says in verse 49 sir and that is the word courier which which is also the word lord but he's probably not speaking to Jesus as the Lord it also just means sir it's a sign of respect a phrase of expect like lord and lady kind of thing sir come down before my child dies so he comes and says I want you to come with me come back to my home and heal my son Jesus says this weird thing to him and he says sir (laughs) come down with me before my child dies my child is dying I don't want to hear any lectures about why people believe in you That's kind of where he is right now. And Jesus is going to heal his child. But he's saying that's what he cares about. Just my son. And Jesus cares about his son too. But because this man needs to see Jesus for who he is. The Lord decides to do an incredible miracle. A sign. A healing unlike anything anyone has seen yet as far as we know. But the man is going to have to trust him. For, for a miracle that he could not yet imagine. So verse 50. Jesus says go. Your son lives. That's, that's a test of faith right there. Because what does he think has to happen to have his son well? He's got to be there. He's got to come right? Remember the centurion that had his, his servant was. His slave was dying and he came to Jesus and he said just say the word and he'll be well. And he was a Roman and Jesus praised his incredible faith because he knew that Jesus could do it just by saying the word. This guy doesn't know that. Jesus is a miracle worker. He's got to be there. And Jesus is asking him to trust him that he can just say the word or he just knows that his son is well. Right? So now he has to go home without Jesus Trusting what Jesus said. If his son is well. Well listen. If you're 20 miles away. And somebody says your son is well. And they healed him from there. That's divine power. And divine knowledge. Something utterly unique. So. Um, that's. That's what Jesus is bringing to him. So Jesus. I'm, I'll bet Jesus said go your son lives in a very reassuring way (laughs) but he still had to believe it he still had to believe it he does and he does he trusts him verse 50 the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off so that's faith so his faith is growing it's a faith in Jesus and don't miss this he believed the word of Jesus so Jesus says it and he believes it so as we look at this we're, we're moving away from Jesus as a healer, shaman, doctor to a person basically that can do anything. If he can declare somebody well from 20 miles away there's something really unique about him. So, and if the man's son is well that's going to be an incredible testimony. So he gets on his horse, he starts off, it's already late in the day, he s- stops for the night, gets back on his horse, continues on towards home and a couple of his slaves meet him on the road. He must have had a very loving family because when they had good news for him they didn't wait for him to ride all the way home. They sent some of the slaves out to tell him the good news. They didn't have cell phones then. So the messaging app were slaves. That's what, <laughs> that's, that's what they did. 
So they meet on the road, verse 51, and he was now going down, his slaves, as he was going, now going down, his slaves met him saying that his son was living. And those fra- the phrase his son was living is almost exactly the words Jesus used. So his son lives, he's got to be happy, and he remembers, verse 52. So, this, so he's going to kind of check on this because something comes to his mind like, Wow, he, he healed him from that moment I just asked him to. But he wants to find out if that's really true. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour which Jesus said to him, your son lives. That's all the proof he needed. So that was enough. So verse 53 just gives you this wonderful little summary of what happened in his family so you can kind of picture all the excitement and everything that went on and the, the, what the stories that were told maybe his wife was Joanna I don't know but whoever she was the whole family and maybe the servants too become followers of Christ he himself believed verse 53 and his whole household so they all come to faith in Christ so Jesus seemingly harsh kind of words did exactly what he wanted them to do it, it caused his faith to blossom and flourish and so the man came for his son's sake I mean at that time at that time when he was coming to Jesus it wouldn't have mattered to him if Jesus was a magician or a shaman or a doctor or whatever he just wanted his son well that's all that mattered but now reflecting on what just happened he couldn't have been just some healer guy or something like that because this doesn't happen there was divine power in him there was divine knowledge in him and Jesus saw this man's minimal faith and by challenging it made him focus on the right thing and the right thing was not the immediate thing the right thing was who Christ is and that's what he comes to believe in so the right thing then and now is asking and answering the right questions who is Jesus What is God doing? And I mean big picture. What is God doing? Not just my son, I need him healed, but what is God doing in the world? Where do I fit into that? Shouldn't I actually investigate this Jesus of Nazareth person and find out who he really is? If he can actually do this? Another question. Do I even have a right to ask him to do things for me? What is my standing before him? Where does that right even come from? You know, you know, the dad in our story doesn't start with those questions at all, but those are basic questions, legitimate questions, important questions. Let's think a little bit more about that. So think about just today, how many people pray to Jesus in, in a desperate situation? That's when they turn to him, right? They call upon Jesus, but they have no interest in honoring him or pleasing him outside of that moment. No interest. They might want to bribe him with something to get him on their side to do something for them. But how many of them treat Jesus as he ought to be treated? Let's go a little further. Who are we, who are we praying to in those desperate situations? What sort of being is it that can actually intervene on my behalf in this world of problems and sickness and woe and tragedy? Who, who are we appealing to? We're just throwing out Jesus, God, those kind of things, right? If he is a being that I'm appealing to, to bend the laws of nature or break them, 
on my behalf personally to solve my problem or the problem of somebody I care about, then do I owe him something like allegiance to maybe worship? Maybe, maybe he's worthy of all my worship. Maybe he's greater than everything I know. But we don't ask those questions once the situation is over so often, you know. But that's the big question. And you, I guess you could boil it down to this. Does he exist for me or do I exist for him? And once you get that settled, your life's going to go in the right direction. Every day people act like God is our servant. And he's there for us when we need him. He's just sitting around in heaven waiting for us to tell him what we want or need. That is actually bonkers. Now bonkers is a technical theological <laughs> Latin word. No, it's not really. It might be, I don't know. Bonkers is a, is a Wayne Wilson theological word for lost souls. That's what, it, that's what bonkers is, okay? And since this man was making this request of Jesus, just think about what the prayer according to scripture is. What is scripture, when scripture talks about prayer, when the Lord Jesus talks about prayer, what is he focusing on when he tells us how to pray? What's the most famous prayer? Thank you. Very good. Yes, that's right. And if you're really clever, you'll say, it's not the Lord's prayer. It's the disciples prayer. He's teaching the disciples, but you're right. The Lord's prayer. I'm all for calling it that, but uh, because the Lord taught it to us, right? But you know, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, here's the question. How much of the Lord's prayer is dedicated to the personal needs and desires of the one praying. Just walk through it in your head. See, I was raised a Lutheran, so I memorized it, right? When I was about six and said it every week. But there's only one line in the Lord's Prayer about my personal needs. One line, just one. Give us this day our daily bread. That's it. Just give me enough to eat today. That's the only line about give me something. This is what I need. This is what I want. Otherwise, in that most well-known prayer of all prayers, Jesus tells us how to pray. It's in Matthew chapter 6, if you haven't looked at it lately. It's all about our relationship to God. That's what the Lord's Prayer is about. It's almost entirely about God's interests, not my interests. Hallowed be thy name. May your name be honored regarded may your name be the most sacred of all things the most sacred reality in the world thy kingdom come longing for God's kingdom to be expressed in this world for his work to get done and we serve him by preaching his kingdom and bringing rebels into his kingdom may his kingdom come and may it truly come when Christ comes back to earth and may it be established in this world for God to reign upon the earth and right all wrongs Thy will be done. So our, our desire and our acceptance of his will, that's a big one. I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what I want, God. That's what you're praying. Then you can ask for your daily bread. And just that simple, give us, our, give us this day our daily bread, right? So our prayers are to glorify his name to ask for his help in accomplishing his purposes on the earth. That's what our prayer should mainly be about. You know, Robert Law, 
he said quote prayer is a mighty instrument not for getting man's will done in heaven but for getting God's will done on earth right and then the rest of the prayer is about God helping us avoid anything that would keep us from doing his will right forgive us our trespasses make sure we are right with you as we sin and we confess our sins forgive us as we forgive others that's going through our Christian life are you forgiving others do you want God to forgive you you forgive other people right you're actually asking God to forgive you according to the forgiveness you extend to other people do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil or the evil one you could even translate that which would be Satan right deliver us from evil and there you're expressing a desire to be free from sin living a holy God honoring life God help me be worthy in the way I conduct myself of your name of your kingdom let me be the right representative for you deliver me from evil that doesn't mean just keep the bad people away from me that's not what he's that's not what that prayer means it means deliver me from falling into evil from doing evil from blowing it and then finally it's the recognition of God's eternal greatness yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever amen right it's acknowledging the greatness of God that's how the prayer ends do you see the overwhelming desire and intent of the believer in that prayer it's for the glory of God it's to serve God it's to do his will it's to see that his will is done and to be a part of all that he's doing in this world it's about our walk with God for God not it's not primarily about ourselves at all not at all I need to eat though to do your will so just make sure I can eat some give me some bread and then all this other stuff's about you that's that's really what the prayer's like Jesus said in chapter 4 verse 34 remember that started the whole thing with the woman at the well conversation with his disciples he said my food is to do the will of him who sent me so this whole idea we're talking about it follows right along with that my food is to do the will of him who sent me that should be exactly our will our desire that should be our food Jesus also talks about God hearing us and our needs in, in other places in the New Testament where you know we have needs and we can bring them before the Father. That's totally appropriate. But the primary thing is being in His will and doing His will. That's the main thing. Now, I just want to add one more thing before we wrap up here and go on to the Lord's table. What I'm talking about doesn't mean it's God's will for all of us to be super saints and full-time ministry and all of that kind of thing it, it wasn't that way that in the church in New Testament times and it's not that way today God doesn't want everybody to be a missionary on a foreign field or everybody to be a pastor everybody to be an elder of a church or any of that kind of stuff he wants regular people anybody that would pray the Lord's Prayer with a full heart he wants anybody that lives a normal life to be infused with the love of Jesus Christ and desirous of seeing that everybody else knows him as far as their power goes he wants and again using Jesus words from the Sermon on the Mountain chapter 5 he wants our light to shine in such a way that people may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven 
That's what he wants from everybody. And he wants normal people to do that. He wants every citizen of the kingdom to live so that everyone living in the dark domain of ignorance and sin and pride, the very stuff we were talking about during prayer time this morning, that they'll take notice of the difference in us. And we'll be able to share with them the wonder and the beauty of Christ. The Lord wants us interacting daily with the real world and the people that don't know God. And he does that by using regular folks with regular jobs and regular callings in life. People who love God supremely and are committed to doing his will no matter what their mundane task in this world is. That's where you meet people. That's where people see. It's for all of us. The Lord wants us interacting daily in the real world. And the world needs us. The world needs you. He needs each one of us to be a light for him. And he, the Lord, will be blessed if we shine brightly, which means following Jesus wholeheartedly. Living on planet Earth. Everybody here living on Earth? (laughs) I saw an alien back there somewhere. Nope, they're all here. All of you guys are living on earth. It's serious business living on planet earth. It really is. It's not a cakewalk. It's not for fun. That's not why we're here. Um, This is a battleground. The earth is a battleground for people's souls. We live in a fallen world. Obviously. (laughs) Humanity, apart from God, has no answers to all the big questions, to any of the big questions. Obviously, they don't. The Bible describes the reason for that as rebellion against God. That's why people are a mess. That's why cultures are a mess. That's why decline always happens. Always happens. Because people are in rebellion against God, pure and simple. So, we've got to remember that our lives here are just a preparation for eternity. And what exactly will happen when death comes? My soul will live on. Where will it live? Where will I belong? Will I belong to God's kingdom or will I be excluded from God's kingdom? Right? That's why Jesus confronts this officer of the king with, the ma- with these matters. His soul. Yes, your son is important. Your soul is more important. Your relationship to God through me is more important. That's really what he's getting him to come to. And he didn't know it at the time. But the Basilikos when he came to Jesus. He didn't know he was talking to the savior of the world. But he was. The Samaritans. In Sikar in chapter 4 verse 42. They got it. Right. And what they discovered about Jesus. Having spent two days with him. Leads right into the story of this guy. The Samaritans spent two days and in verse 42 it says they were saying to the woman it's no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. In two days Jesus brought these semi Jehovah worshiping people to see him as the savior of the world. They knew who he was. This man did not know until Jesus dealt with him the way he did. And Jesus got this man thinking about miracles and then Jesus does something that only God can do. And the man reflected on that 
and he believed. And his whole household believed. So believing is everything. That's how you get connected to God through faith. And it's the heart of our relationship with him is to believe. John 3.16, if you want to back up to chapter 3, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the idea that courses through the gospel of John just like your life giving blood courses through your veins. I mean that's what drives this whole gospel. Believe. Believe in God become flesh. Believe in the Savior that he sent. And as we move into chapter 5 which is next week who Jesus is and what it means to believe in him becomes more and more clear. So we will make it to chapter 5. Yes. <laughs> believe. <laughs> Let's pray. Our great God, you love us so completely and you deserve to have our minds and our thoughts to be focused on your will for us, your will for the world. We exist to serve you, whatever else we have to do in this life. And in service there is joy and satisfaction. So use us and mold us into the men and women that you want us to be, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.